The Extended Mind is an influential essay written by philosophers Andy Clark and David Chalmers, first published in 1998. The essay challenges the traditional view that the mind is confined to the brain and body and argues for the idea of extended cognition in which the mind can extend beyond the boundaries of the individual organism to include external tools and artefacts. Clark and Chalmers argue that the use of such tools can be seen as a genuine part of cognitive processing and that this perspective has important implications for our understanding of the nature of the mind and the relationship between the individual and their environment. The essay has had a significant impact on the fields of cognitive science and philosophy of mind and continues to be widely discussed and debated. I'll let you enjoy a reading of the original essay. The Extended Mind by Andy Clark and David Chalmers Introduction Where does the mind stop and the rest of the world begin? The question invites two standard replies. Some accept the demarcations of skin and skull and say that what is outside the body is outside the mind. Others are impressed by arguments suggesting that the meaning of our words just ain't in the head and hold that this externalism about meaning carries over into an externalism about mind. We propose to pursue a third position. We advocate a very different sort of externalism, an active externalism, based on the active role of the environment in driving cognitive processes. Extended cognition. Consider three cases of human problem-solving. 1. A person sits in front of a computer screen which displays images of various two-dimensional geometric shapes and is asked to answer questions concerning the potential fit of such shapes into depicted sockets. To assess fit, the person must mentally rotate the shapes to align them with the sockets. 2. A person sits in front of a similar computer screen, but this time can choose either to physically rotate the image on the screen by pressing a rotate button or to mentally rotate the image as before. We can also suppose, not unrealistically, that some speed advantage accrues to the physical rotation operation. 3. Sometime in the cyberpunk future, a person sits in front of a similar computer screen. This agent, however, has the benefit of a neural implant which can perform the rotation operation as fast as the computer in the previous example. The agent must still choose which internal resource to use, the implant or the good old-fashioned mental rotation. As each resource makes different demands on attention and other concurrent brain activity. How much cognition is present in these cases? We suggest that all three cases are similar. Case 3 with the neural implant seems clearly to be on a par with case 1. And case 2 with the rotation button displays the same sort of computational structure as case 3. Although it is distributed across agent and computer instead of internalized within the agent. If the rotation in case 3 is cognitive, by what right do we count case 2 as fundamentally different? We cannot simply point to the skin-skull boundary as justification, since the legitimacy of that boundary is precisely what is at issue, but nothing else seems different. The kind of case just described is by no means as exotic as it may at first appear. 
It is not just the presence of advanced external computing resources which raises the issue, but rather the general tendency of human reasoners to lean heavily on environmental supports. Thus consider the use of pen and paper to perform long multiplication, McClelland et al., 1986, Clark, 1989, the use of physical rearrangements of letter tiles to prompt word recall in Scrabble, Kirsch, 1995, the use of instruments such as the nautical slide rule, Hutchins, 1995, and the general paraphernalia of language, books, diagrams, and culture. In all these cases, the individual brain performs some operations, while others are delegated to manipulations of external media. Had our brains been different, this distribution of tasks would doubtless have varied. In fact, even the mental rotation cases described in scenarios 1 and 2 are real. The cases reflect options available to players of the computer game Tetris. In Tetris, falling geometric shapes must be rapidly directed into an appropriate slot in an emerging structure. A rotation button can be used. David Kirsch and Paul Maglio, 1994, calculate that the physical rotation of a shape through 90 degrees takes about 100 milliseconds plus about 200 milliseconds to select the button. To achieve the same result by mental rotation takes about 1,000 milliseconds. Kirsch and Maglio go on to present compelling evidence that physical rotation is used not just to position a shape ready to fit a slot, but often to help determine whether the shape and the slot are compatible. The latter use constitutes a case of what Kirsch and Maglio call an epistemic action. Epistemic actions alter the world so as to aid and augment cognitive processes such as recognition and search. Merely pragmatic actions, by contrast, alter the world because some physical change is desirable for its own sake, e.g., putting cement into a hole in a dam. Epistemic action, we suggest, demands spread of epistemic credit. If, as we confront some task, a part of the world functions as a process which, were it done in the head, we would have no hesitation in recognizing as part of the cognitive process. Then that part of the world is, so we claim, part of the cognitive process. Cognitive processes ain't all in the head. Active externalism In these cases, the human organism is linked with an external entity in a two-way interaction, creating a coupled system that can be seen as a cognitive system in its own right. All the components in the system play an active causal role, and they jointly govern behavior in the same sort of way that cognition usually does. If we remove the external component, the system's behavioral competence will drop, just as it would if we removed part of its brain. Our thesis is that this sort of coupled process counts equally well as a cognitive process, whether or not it is wholly in the head. This externalism differs greatly from standard variety advocated by Putnam, 1975, and Burge, 1979. When I believe that water is wet and my twin believes that twin water is wet, the external features responsible for the difference in our beliefs are distal and historical at the other end of a lengthy causal chain. Features of the present are not relevant. If I happen to be surrounded by XYZ right now, maybe I have teleported to twin earth. My beliefs still concern standard water because of my history. In these cases, the relevant external features are passive. Because of their distal nature, they play no role in driving the cognitive process in the here and now.
This is reflected by the fact that the actions performed by me and my twin are physically indistinguishable, despite our external differences. In the cases we describe, by contrast, the relevant external features are active, playing a crucial role in the here and now. Because they are coupled with the human organism, they have a direct impact on the organism and on its behavior. In these cases, the relevant parts of the world are in the loop, not dangling at the other end of a long causal chain. Concentrating on this sort of coupling leads us to an active externalism, as opposed to the passive externalism of Putnam and Burge. Many have complained that even if Putnam and Burge are right about the externality of content, it is not clear that these external aspects play a causal or explanatory role in the generation of action. In counterfactual cases where internal structure is held constant, but these external features are changed, behavior looks just the same, so internal structure seems to be doing the crucial work. We will not adjudicate that issue here, but we note that active externalism is not threatened by any such problem. The external features in a coupled system play an ineliminable role. If we retain internal structure, but change the external features, behavior may change completely. The external features here are just as causally relevant as typical internal features of the brain. By embracing an active externalism, we allow a more natural explanation of all sorts of actions. One can explain my choice of words in Scrabble, for example, as the outcome of an extended cognitive process involving the rearrangement of tiles on my tray. Of course, one could always try to explain my action in terms of internal processes and a long series of inputs and actions, but this explanation would be needlessly complex. If an isomorphic process were going on in the head, we would feel no urge to characterize it in this cumbersome way. In a very real sense, the rearrangement of tiles on the tray is not part of action. It is part of thought. The view we advocate here is reflected by a growing body of research in cognitive science. In areas as diverse as the theory of situated cognition, Suchman 1987, studies of real-world robotics, Beer 1989, dynamical approaches to child development, Thelen and Smith 1994, and research on the cognitive properties of collectives of agents, Hutchins 1995. Cognition is often taken to be continuous with processes in the environment. Thus, in seeing cognition as extended, one is not merely making a terminological decision. It makes a significant difference to the methodology of scientific investigation. In effect, explanatory methods that might once have been thought appropriate only for the analysis of inner processes are now being adapted for the study of the outer. And there is promise that our understanding of cognition will become richer for it. Some find this sort of externalism unpalatable. One reason may be that many identify the cognitive with the conscious, and it seems far from plausible that consciousness extends outside the head in these cases. But not every cognitive process, at least on standard usage, is a conscious process. It is widely accepted that all sorts of processes beyond the borders of consciousness play a crucial role in cognitive processing. In the retrieval of memories, linguistic processes, and skill acquisition, for example. So the mere fact that external processes are external where consciousness is internal is no reason to deny that those processes are cognitive.